back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we have Ali Dalla. So after doing banking at TD for six years, Ali founded and is a CEO of Fineo, which is a front-end software platform reducing friction in the insurance industry for consumers, agents, and companies to be able to operate on one system. It has been called the Amazon of the insurance industry and has raised over $7 million in funds. Ali, thank you so much for being here today. If you could introduce yourself, that would be amazing. And then we will get into our questions. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you did a great job already in the intro, but uh, you know, I'll add a little bit of flavor to that. Um, I started my career really as a financial planner during the 2008-2009 collapse. And kind of going through that financial collapse was very, very difficult as a young professional. Never seen a market cycle before, didn't really know the X's and O's of finances, but it taught me that financial services is more than just numbers. It's really about people. And there's this bond that's created between a financial professional and a household that as the robo ties of everything has come about, I feel is still missing. And people don't really understand that unless you've been there through some of the hardest times of a family, it can be very difficult to understand the job of a financial professional. And so after you know, having a, a pretty decent run in uh, retail banking, had the pleasure of working on the first innovation team at TD Bank. And at the time, coming out of the 0809 collapse, the CEO of TD really wanted to create this reinvention of the customer experience. And it was everything from the parking lot where a customer enters all the way to an executive dashboard. And how would we rethink everything in the middle? And so I felt very blessed to have that opportunity to be on that first team. Uh, then ended up joining a tech startup as first employee, building uh, basically a marketplace for employee benefits. So at the time, you had this changing of the guard where the millennials and the boomers were all working in the same company for the first time. And typically speaking, you know, the needs of a 20-something-year-old and the needs of a 40-something-year-old from an employee benefits perspective may be different. But traditionally speaking, everybody would take the same plan. So it was very boxy. So we unbundled the plan of employee benefits for small companies allowed employees to go through an a la carte, create plan design, customize and choice. We stitched everything back together and then handled the administration. That company was acquired. I spent a few years at the company that acquired us as managing partner. And then, as you mentioned, in 2016, I uh, took a leap of faith and launched Fineo. I love that story. I never thought of that problem where like people that are younger don't need the same you know, benefits as people that are older. So that's really cool that you thought of that idea. And in your LinkedIn bio, there's a quote from Steve Jobs that says, your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied with what you do is to believe you do great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. So can you talk to us a bit about why this is in your bio and why it's so important to you? Yeah, you know, when I when I heard it the first time, I took it very much as like a fortune cookie. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. But as I, as I thought more and more about what that meant, it gave me a few insights. So number one is this concept of Times will always get tough, but perseverance matters. And you can persevere if you deeply care about the problem that you're solving. And I think when I think about Fineo in particular, my mission is very clear and our vision is very clear. We're trying to keep humans at the centerfold of this very complicated supply chain problem of distribution of life and complex insurance. And so what it really taught me was I can apply my efforts and my energy and my skills into many different arenas. But if I don't deeply care about the problem set, it's going to be really difficult to go through the hard, hard times. And so it's one of those quotes that has just stuck with me. And the reason why I have it there in my bio is because I want people who land on that bio to really think about that quote as to like, well, what's this person about? Why do they care so much about this one particular quote? And it's ironic how many conversations have started with, hey, tell me about why that quote exists in your bio. So it's been uh, very, very interesting. 
No, I, I remember I saw that in your bio and I loved it because I think that's so important for doing work, like doing work that you're actually passionate about. A lot of the time people will you know, try and tackle this problem and they'll, they'll do it and they'll go and they'll go until there's resistance and things get difficult. Um, and if you actually want to get past those barriers and obstacles, you know, doing something that you're actually passionate about and you really want to be doing, um, you know, that's what's going to push you to, to be able to fulfill your goals. So I adore that. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit more about Fineo um, and, you know, why you founded it and why you think it's important? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to get nerdy on insurance for a minute. So, so stay tuned. Um, insurance as an industry really breaks up into two product categories. On the one side, you have products like home, travel, auto insurance, and pet insurance, products that consumers generally can self-serve because they're very simple. Like we can go online, put in our car information, our home information, and buy insurance. It's a fairly lightweight exercise. And it's something that you typically have to do. But when you look across the street to the industry of like life insurance, critical illness, disability, whole life insurance, these products are really complicated. There's a lot of choice. These are very long-term decisions. You could be buying insurance coverage till you're 100, for example. And most of the time, these products are coming off the back of a financial planning process. And for most consumers, they're not, frankly, financially literate enough to build their own financial plan. So they work with a professional. So then when you take like one layer deeper and you say, okay, there's complexity of product. Then you look at how does this product get distributed? And insurance companies like the big brands you probably hear about, Sun Life, Manulife, these sorts of companies, Canada Life, they distribute products in one of three ways. So a couple of percentage points of their distribution goes direct to customer, where clients will self-serve and buy online. 10 to 15% of insurance is sold through what are called captive sales agents. So I wear you know, a Sun Life badge and I sell you Sun Life insurance. But a bulk of this insurance is actually distributed through independent brokerages. And this could be like Jane Smith, owner operator who works out of her basement, or this could be Jane Smith and co who has about 50 staff working with her. Irrelevant of how big her firm is, she doesn't do enough distribution volume to procure a supply contract from these insurance companies to actually be allowed to sell these products. So like many other industries, she bands her business together. She pulls her business through this wholesaling company. And this wholesaling company for years has effectively been like an analog marketplace where on the one side, they procure insurance supply from all the different insurance companies. And then they have distribution relationships with brokers and they monetize in the middle. So as the industry has evolved, what's happened is you've become very fragmented with all these different wholesalers and the value proposition of these wholesalers has become eroded and it's becoming kind of a race to the bottom on price. So our vision was, well, the next generation of wholesaling is really going to be a digital platform. And to really make that happen, we're going to have to solve a multitude of problems. On the one side, we're going to have technology that insurance companies need to spin up and digitize products and launch them into our marketplace. On the other side, we're going to have to build a whole entire toolkit for brokers, brokerages, and their customers to go through that buying journey in a compliant and regulated way, because we are you know, really heavily regulated in the life insurance space. So it was about, if you think about like Apple, or you think about Amazon, or you think about um, Android, they're ecosystem platforms with applications built over top. Underpinning that is really a data model. And that data model allows information to flow freely from one side of an industry to another. So think about fulfillment by Amazon, right? You go in as a consumer, you purchase, all the logistics and everything's handled by Amazon. Seller makes money, they give some of the profit to Amazon. So our vision, and you know, to your point earlier about the Amazon of insurance is, could we actually bring all the stakeholders together? 
could we then partner with the industry to become an industry distribution platform? And then could we handle the entire stack of technology needed to go from prospect to policy? So it's a very, very big build in an extremely slow and complex market. Um, but it's probably one of the hardest problems that I could think of solving that I'm personally equipped to try to attack. That's so cool. And it's clearly like you have a lot of knowledge in this field and it's like very complex, but the way you explain it like made a lot of sense. So that's really cool. So can you talk to us a bit about what your founding journey looked like? Because we know there's a lot of risk involved in like founding a company, especially if you're raising money. So sure. how did you, you know, take that risk and what drove you to take that risk? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think, you know, we talk a lot about in tech, like product market fit. And I think that's important. And there's a moment in time when product market fit happens, when your company just hits this exponential growth curve. But the beginning journey of a company to me is about founder market fit. Like, are you as the individual built to understand and solve this complicated problem? And so, you know, thinking about our long-term vision and our future first, which is we want it to be an industry platform. The question is, where do you start? Because you've got all these moving parts. And we kind of boiled it down to a first principle of our industry. And that first principle insight is distribution power changes the insurance company's behavior. Meaning if I'm helping an insurance company to sell, sell their product, they're more likely to want to work with us. So the first thing that we did is we looked at the market, we focused on insurance brokers after doing a bunch of customer discovery, and we realized one insight at the time in 2016, which is uh, insurance brokers were doing more work out of their office than they were in their office, but they didn't have any mobile tools to take with them. The filing cabinet couldn't come, the CPU couldn't be taken easily, and at the time, tablets just weren't the tool of choice for a broker. So we built a mobile app, and that mobile app really only did a few things. It hooked into your calendar. And then it started to deduce like, who is your next meeting? And then would give you recommendations of best practices. And then we basically had brokers like audio dictate their notes. And then we would again, recommend the follow-up items. And all we were trying to do was to learn two things. Would brokers use technology on the road? And could we learn about the profile of customer this broker was selling to and what their sales cycle was like? Because if we could start to show that we can take your sales cycle from eight to 10 meetings down to four, down to three, Maybe we can create more efficiencies and opportunities for you to sell more, therefore create more profit. And going back to our initial insight, giving us more leverage and power with insurance companies. So after we built out this first mobile experience, got some good validation, our first 250K of angel money came from the users of our beta. So that was a very, very important point to say, we might not have product market fit, but we landed on something that's fairly interesting. And people are willing to not only use it, but invest in that concept. We then you know, moved into the angel market, raised a little bit more capital. And then in 2017, uh, forged a partnership with Impression Ventures, who was our first VC, institutional VC, uh, who really took an early bet on our vision. After that, we built kind of a web experience to complement the mobile app. Really, if you think about it, it was like a vertical CRM system built for insurance agents. Again, automating things like compliance and sales cycles and that sort of thing. Uh, we still hadn't entered into the transactional marketplace yet. We were still just building up distribution power. And then kind of middle of 2018, we started to get enough uh, brokers and distribution access that we went to a few insurance companies and said, hey, look, we've got you know a couple hundred brokers working with us now. We think that if you give us your product, we can actually help you sell it. And so a couple of insurance companies gave us that uh, access to product. And in middle of 2018, we launched this like hybrid marketplace where a broker could go and use the app to like run a quote through a chatbot, And then they could ask for a product to be fulfilled. And we did a bunch of like manual stuff on the back end, but we did whatever automation we could. At the end of 2018, we hit a real important inflection point in the business. And the inflection point was 
brokers liked the early experience, but we didn't have a supply shelf large enough to really service their entire business. We only had a few insurance company contracts. So we had to pick a path. And this is where that like pivot or persevere moment comes. And so we had a choice. One is we're gonna build organic distribution volume till we can procure contract number five, number six, number seven, or we're gonna to pivot to a partner strategy where we could work with an incumbent wholesaler, effectively leveraging their existing contractual relationships with insurance companies to fill up our supply shelf and then create scale that way. And so we chose that door. We created a partnership with the country's largest incumbent wholesaler, a group called Hub Financial. And that really set us up uh, for scaling our business. And then now we're you know, 22 insurance companies on the platform in Canada, over 500 products on the shelf. Uh, we're in the US now, which was a very long and uh, tiring journey to get you know, regulation passed in all the different states. Uh, but we're now live in the US as well, uh, licensed in all 50 states operating in our first six. And we raised a, another kind of seed round in 2019, led by impression, uh, led by Luge Capital, uh, who is again, a, another really great partner for us, believed in our vision early. So yeah, it's been a really good journey so far. Yeah, well, I was just gonna say that journey is incredible and it definitely was not always smooth sailing and you know there were challenges but um that sounds just that sounds super awesome um and congratulations for where the company is at right now i'm curious like before this how much research did you do in like founding your company to make sure the idea was sound and how did you conduct the research you know what data points or things made you believe it was a good enough idea to invest your time into yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so kind of going back to the concept of founder market fit, because this is such a com uh, complex uh, market, very old school, um, the first thing I did was like had a point of view because I came from the industry. And I laid that point of view out really clearly in a handful of slides, built out a mock-up and a prototype. But before that, I started with 130 customer discovery calls. And that's with me even coming from the market and having a fairly deep knowledge of the space that I was playing in. 130 discovery calls, ranging anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour long, depending on the profile. Did them in Canada, the US, UK. And I even touched a couple of people from Australia and even a couple from Africa, because I wanted to validate that this problem set was well beyond a North American issue, that it's something that I could truly try to create a global company started and headquartered in Canada, but create global impact. And so the process of that is, you know, very traditional research, qualitative, quantitative questions, very open-ended in terms of like, walk me through your current process, help me understand your pain points. If you had a magic wand and could solve a problem today, what would that be and why? Like those sorts of leading questions to just get a dialogue started. And then when we had those 130, started to slim that down to a cohort of about 10. And these 10 people became kind of my champions in terms of feedback. And so as I was iterating on product, as I was iterating on wireframes, iterating on positioning statements, these are the people that I would go to. And then, as I mentioned, a handful of them ended up writing early checks into the company. I love that story. That's a lot of calls to have. So that's yeah. really cool. And it's also really cool because a lot of people, you know, they fall in love with the solution as in the tech stack, but not necessarily the problem. So it's really cool that you like kind of fell in love with the problem, made sure it was a problem and then develop technology behind it. But not only you're a founder, but you're also like a CEO of your own company. And right now it's very popular to like, you know, want to be a CEO. It sounds like a really, you know, cool position to be in. However, it's not very clear, you know, what CEOs do sometimes. It changes company to company. So yeah. can you talk to us a bit about what challenges you face being the CEO of your own company? And is there anything you wish you knew beforehand? Oh my God, so many things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think it, the irony is, I think we glamorize startup life a lot. And I think that there's a big misconception out there where, you know, startups are um, 
supposed to be this cool, fun, hip, but we all forget about the pain that you go through as you're building a company. And, you know, you mentioned that the CEO job is, is not really the same in every company. I'd also say that it's not the same in every stage of a company. So in your early founding days, I mean, you literally are doing everything, right? Um, chief janitor is like a title that you hold at one point, right? You're taking out the garbage and the trash and like you have to order all the supplies. Like you're doing literally everything, but you also have to manage sales and success and support and product and just everything in the middle of that. So it's a very taxing role that I think, you know, very few people truly can understand and appreciate until they've done it. And I think, you know, in my case in particular, I feel like I kind of started this journey on a problem that I deeply cared about and then became a CEO as a result of the company growing. I didn't think I started it to be a CEO. I started it to solve a problem that I gave a lot of you know crap about really. And I wanted to see change in the world. And, you know, in terms of changes and, and things I, I wish I would have done differently, you know, I'll go through a couple of experiences with you. COVID was probably the hardest operating moment of my life. And uh, for a lot of reasons, right, personal, professional, all the things in between, right. But in my industry, the industry stopped, like it was brought to its knees. And the reason why is the entire industry is paper-based and you have to go get, you know, a doctor's appointment and you need to do blood samples and you need a nurse's visit. You couldn't do any of that stuff. Underwriting is mostly manual for a lot of you know policies. And so in that moment, you know, you really had to take a step back and ask yourself hard questions about decisions that you were going to make. You know, I, some of my CEO friends and I have talked about, we've probably made a decade worth of operating decisions in six months because we had to rethink everything about our company. Will your company even be alive in the next version of the world? Could it even be, right? For some companies, COVID was like the thriving moment. For others, it's the one that buried them. And then there's companies like us that had to sustain through and make some really difficult operational choices to be able to, you know, get out of that slump, which was not easy. Other things that, you know, I wish I would have learned earlier. And um, it doesn't matter, by the way, how many people tell you these things, you have to go and learn them. And that's why I say learned earlier. I think, you know, culture and core values are something that, you know, some people will talk about as like words on a wall. But I think there's a big difference between writing them down and then living them and acting them and embodying them and then forcing them in the company at the early stage so that your early cohort of team not only have the vision and the mission, but they are contributing to and growing that culture and owning that culture bag every single day. Culture is not owned by one person, it's the collective. And the reason why I bring that up is as we started to scale our business, uh, after we closed our seed round in 2019, we brought in a lot of talent. And one of the things we did is we hired some, of course, really brilliant people, but I don't think I personally did a great job at that time of leading through some of the executive changes that we had made. And culture really started to take a hit. We had this awesome culture growing into our seed round. And then we had this friction where we had brought in people from later stage companies whose mindsets and playbooks and ideas and just way of maneuvering was very different than the things that had worked for us in the early days. And there was this tension and there was this like two camps. And at the time, you know, you close around a capital, you're hiring really fast, you're moving into your next market and you put in all these leaders, but they didn't necessarily have the same collective core values that you know, we had already instilled in the rest of the group. And in hindsight, I wish that I would have handled those moments differently at times. I wish I didn't split the difference on core values at those times. I wish I would have been more hands-on in the early days of onboarding some of these executives. And there's an old adage, like you hire a smart executive, you leave them alone. Well, I think I left too much alone. And, uh, you know, it was a big growing moment for me. And the last thing I'll say is that I think that there's a lot of vanity fair out there in terms of like what the startup does, like going to conferences and taking all these meetings. And like, yeah, some of that's valuable. I wish I would have been a little bit smarter with my time in the early days where I feel like I just spent too much time 
taking a lot of meetings that I probably could have avoided or spending too much time in meetings that I only needed to be there for the first 10 minutes of, for example. Uh, my CEO coach has given me this great framework about a barbell. So come in early, set the context for the team, set the vision of what you want to achieve, leave them alone in the middle, come back to review and approve. Now you can only do that at a certain scale, but I think those operating best practices are something I wish I had earlier. So net summary, I wish I would have taken better care of mental health earlier. I'll also layer that one in. I wish I would have invested in a CEO coach earlier. And I wish that I was stronger in terms of maintaining the core values of the team as we scaled uh, with a lot more re resiliency at the time. That is a lot of knowledge and that is a lot of like information that's like really cool. So thank you for sharing that. And I have like some follow-up questions based on that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So first of all, how did you go about setting the culture for your company? Yeah, um, you know, a couple of ways. So early days um, with the co-founders, we sat down and we wrote a document that had basically our core values that we believed in. And we even, you know, looked at our brand. We looked at the palette color that we chose of purple. We even had a document about why that, because it was all tied together. The name of the company, everything tied together. And so we kind of had that as in the early days as a very top-down framework. These are the values of the co-founders. These are the values we want to instill in the team. And then as we grew, it became more of a bottoms up approach where it's like, these are the things that we believe, but if we don't have alignment with the team and their values now are the voices that are operating the company every day, then we're going to be, again, disjointed. And, you know, as we were growing and scaling and bringing in new talent to the company, people had come from really great cultures and had basically taught us some frameworks. And so some of the things that we you know, did at the time, surveys across the team about values, things that were important to them, one-on-one -on -one interviews submission idea processes, just opening up the company and having the company guide its culture versus the CEO and the executive team guiding its culture. And now, you know, we have this really great doc that we give to everybody. We review it all the time. I write emails about our core values almost every other week. And we talk, we use the verbatim of our core values, not just me, the staff and the team use the verbatim on a daily basis. And then what we do is we have to refresh and reframe those core values over time, right? Because where you start to grow and more of the voices external are there from the ones that were there to start with. So again, you have to go through that exercise. So I believe it's the combination of two things. The executive founding team has to have a point of view on values because ultimately it's, you know, it's your company to steer. And then I think you need to work with your team, your operating team on the ground in those two things and come up with, you know, what you believe is your core values. Out of those core values come culture, right? So then the actions that you take the things that you do when nobody's watching or the way that you conduct yourself both in the company and out of the company, those become the culture. And your culture becomes almost like an antibody where people who come into the company, they get booted out if they don't meet that culture, right? Uh, and so it, it almost becomes like a defense mechanism over time. Mm -hmm. that's, that's also really interesting. And that's a great way to think about culture. I don't think anyone ever like talked to me about how culture is formed before. So that was like really interesting. And I also have a question about hiring. So I actually thought about this like quite a bit, so I want to hear of, like your point of view of this. So large companies, let's say like Shopify or like, you know, larger ones, they had the luxury to go to hackathons or go to like, you know, schools like Waterloo and like hire, like, let's say the best talent, right? And be like, yo, yeah. we can give you this much salary, this many benefits, et cetera. And there's like, you know, lucrative kind of like look of a big company. But I'm always curious how like startups hire good people, because at the beginning, what I've heard is like, the people you hire first is what make the company like really good or like maybe not that good. So how do you incentivize, first of all, people to work for a startup? How do you find them? Because it's harder to find them because you can't necessarily go to like, you know, hackathons, et cetera. And is there some kind of like tool where you can like find people? I'm just like very curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. The tool I think that I've learned is your network. The tool is your network. 
And your network is only going to be there for you if you invest and cultivate your network. And like any relationship, you have to add to it. You have to contribute towards it. You have to harness it. You have to spend time on it. And, uh, you know, I have some friends who have done such an incredible job of upkeep with their network that they actually have their own CRM system to maintain and manage relationships. They've systematized it. I mean, that's how important networks are to some people. Now, in terms of how do you, you know, uh, recruit and influence somebody uh, and come to, you know, a, a crazy startup, especially in the early days, I think it's a combination. Number one is, you, you know, you have, to, you have to really have an inspirational vision and pretty crystal clear idea as to what you want to get to and why you want to be there. And that has to really kind of strike a chord in the person on the other end. The second is, I think, you know, you can go to a big company, you can make two, three, four, five X, maybe that what you can at a startup, but what you don't get is you don't get the breadth of opportunities and experiences. And so there are some people in this world who, especially at times in their career, are willing to trade off capital now for two things, equity for future value and the opportunity to truly create and make change and have influence and have authority. That to me is worth more at the early stage of a career than almost anything else. Uh, and then the third is, I think, you know, you, you have to be fairly, um, fairly creative on comp models because you just don't have the money, especially if you're, you know, really early stage, uh, maybe even not funded yet. Right. So some of the things you, you have to do early, I believe if you're going to take a track and by the way, I'm not saying everybody needs to go get venture capital because that's not the only way to capitalize and build a company, but that is a track. So if you are going to take a venture track, then thinking about, well, how do I carve out the right employee stock option pool, the right ESOP early? How do I delineate between what is a co-founder, an early employee, a first employee, right? And like giving those individuals a really great package to incent them to stick around. How can you create performance triggers that as the company achieves success and achieves these milestones, that people are properly compensated for that? Uh, and the reality is, is, is the org chart of a startup is extremely fluid. And where I think a lot of friction can happen, and I experience, I've experienced this personally, where you bring someone into a company and you have a, they have a trajectory in mind that they want to go on, but the company is fluid. So it's difficult to give somebody a track when you don't really know what the company's stage or size or scale is going to look like in that period of time, because you're all just trying to move towards a problem set that you're trying to solve for. And so I think that like being very open and very transparent about, look, I don't necessarily know what your title is going to be at the next stage of company or how many people you're going to manage, but here are the things we're going to achieve together. And these are the skills that you're going to obtain along the way. You know, I've really changed my uh, approach to career development with people uh, after, again, some really great advice from others and, and a good CEO coach, where I've, I've indexed less to how can I help somebody grow in my company and more along the lines of what is it this person wants to achieve from their current role to their next stage, to their stage after? And then how do I align skill development and experience opportunities to those pathways? So the first thing we do is we look at like, what did I hire you for? So that's the first box. Then the second is like, what job do you do? Because very quickly between when you got hired and like three months later, you're probably doing something different at a startup than what you got hired for. It's like, okay, now let's align, first of all, your compensation to this new job description. The title may stay the same, but your job description may have changed. Maybe you're taking on more. Then let's look at the evolution of that role towards your end state. So for example, if you bring in somebody like a project manager who says, well, I want to be a chief product officer one day, 
And they're starting to move a track from like a PM to a head of product to a director of product, right? Like you can like move these tracks along and then you can start to create skills and opportunities for them to really have those experiences in your company. So I think, you know, Christina, to, to summarize and answer your question, um, you need to have a very compelling vision in the early days. You need to align that vision with the right people who want to take both the leap of faith in their career, but also want those breadth of opportunities that only a startup can afford them. Then you need to be fairly creative on comp model and comp structure. I think being very open with them about the pathway for your career may look uncertain, but the pathway for the company will effectively give you a canvas to paint your career path on. And then I think as you know, the leader supporting and creating those opportunities for them along the way is really critical. I'm actually getting a ton of knowledge bombs from this from this episode, um, and I'm learning a lot. So yes, thank you. And it's so it's so cool to see what you've what you've done and what you've built. Something I did want to ask you about was a little more on the funding side. So in 2019, Finio raised 5.5 million, and then in 2017, 2.25 million. So can you just walk us through what the process of raising funds looked like, and you know what that funding mainly had to go toward? Sure. Um, so let's look at this in a couple of different stages. We'll look at um, what does it take to you know, raise your first round of capital? How do you prepare for a fundraise? What's the fundraise process like? And then what does it mean after you close capital? Maybe we'll try to break it up into those things. Um, so in the early stages, again, if you look at like the first couple of you know, months of a startup, it's really just about validation of problem set, right? Interviews, research, early product, that sort of thing. That's where angel capital typically fuels you, if not, you know, founder capital in the early days. And really the goal there is just to be around long enough so that you can start to knock off some of these proof points and validate some early assumptions. Then as you get into kind of your seed or your pre-seed round, that's typically when your first institutional investor, and when I say institutional investor, I mean a professional venture capitalist who has taken money from other people as LPs into a fund to distribute into companies based on a mandate and a thesis. And to be prepared for venture capital fundraising is a process. You obviously need all the things that we already know, like a good diligence room, you need a competitive analysis and a market sizing document and a pitch deck and like all that stuff, you know, you can go online and get your checklist of things. But what you actually need before any of that is you need relationships. And you need to start to understand the language and the industry of a venture capitalist what their fund constructs look like, how much of that fund has been deployed, what their thesis is on a space, and if you align with that thesis at all. So that is really customer discovery in another way. And there's an old adage that says, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. If you ask for advice, you'll get money. Uh, venture capitalists are really great at connecting dots along the way. So I would say, if you are interested in raising venture capital at some point, I think the earlier you start to understand the lay of the land, and start to engage with these VCs to understand what the benchmarks are for your business model type as you get closer and closer to raising capital and building a very consistent set of relationships with you know, the, the tier one VCs that you want to partner with and then leaning on them for advice and guidance before they become an investor. And the reason why is once they become an investor, if you think about you know, Impression Ventures and Luge Capital are two lead investors from the last two rounds, these people sit on our board these partners, Christian and Kareem Galani, I meet with every two weeks. These are not just like people that you take money from and forget about. These are extremely impactful, influential people in the way you're going to build your company out. So you best well have a good rapport relationship going in. So then the fundraise process itself is really like a sales process. I mean, you, you have a funnel of opportunities, right? Um, the way that we did it is we bucketed our VCs into kind of 
uh, a little couple of tiers, right? The A's, which are the ones we really wanted to be our lead investors. The B's, who could be follow-ons to a lead investor. The C's, who could be fillers. So they're like, could write you small checks, but you, you know, they may not impact the company a lot. And then your D list is like the list that you just want to practice your pitches on. And you start with your D list. And so you start by like, you know, crafting your pitch, honing your pitch, working on iterating on your pitch deck, which by the way, getting a narrative down to 12 to 15 slides is extremely hard and extremely time consuming. And like, if you give me 50 slides, I can tell you a story. It will take me two days to build a deck. You give me 10 slides. I need a week to build that deck because every word matters on that deck and less is more, right? Less is more. So then you start kind of going through the sales process. And then you get to a point where you find this alignment with a VC. And this alignment is around like the vision of the company, the vision of their fund. You come together and you say, well, you know, do we want to work on this problem together? And then there's a little dance and the tango is a negotiation on a term sheet. And there's two different parts to a term sheet. There's the financial terms, which most people think about. How much money are you taking at what valuation? That's actually less important at the early days. What's more important are the non-financial terms the terms that are going to impact and influence the investors in the future and the next capital round that you may have. Because if you have some off-market, non-standard terms in your early round, it may be very difficult for another Series A investor, let's say, to come in and write a check over top of that. Once you get a term sheet signed by your lead investor, then you're on the same side of the table now. And now you work hand-in-hand to bring in the right partners to fill the rest of the round. And then you go through a closing process. So from kind of start a fundraise day one to closing money in the bank on average for a company is six months. You know, we've been lucky to kind of be that three to four month mark, but it takes a quarter to prepare for a fundraise, a quarter to two quarters to run a process. And oh, by the way, you're still operating company during that time. So now you have a full-time responsibility to execute and operate, plus you have to fundraise. And oh yeah, you know, in my case, like I have a kid and like all those other things. So it's the most stressful time for a founder. And this is where you feel the most alone. And this is where like a lot of people don't talk about the mental health issues because all day long, you're just dealing with no, 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 no. Because very few companies get funded like that. It's a grind, right? We all hear the tech crunch, the, the, the big ones that like, oh, preempted term sheet, raise $500 million in two weeks. That's not the reality for 99% of founders. And that's when things get really hard. So then, you know, you, you take the capital, before you take the capital, I think the question was, is like, what do you do with it? Well, you have a fund deployment plan, very clearly ironed out. And for most companies, that's going towards hiring and marketing and sales and product and technology, but mostly for people at the early stages, that's your largest line item on your financial expense line. And then, you know, you have a time horizon, 12 to 18 months, typically, before you go to raise your next round of capital and your growth objectives are, are fairly strong and hard. And so you really got to hit that treadmill quickly and run like mad. That was a lot of knowledge. I did not know all that about funding. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And yeah, it all goes back to relationships, I feel like, because like at the end of the day, it's so smart to like look at the people who are investing in your company early on, because at the end of the day, they're helping you as well. They're not just money, as you said. So not all money is good money. Like hearing that again is such a good you know, reinforcer. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for going on this podcast. We definitely learned a lot. Before we wrap it up, uh, can you give us like three action items from what we talked about for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I think we'll start at the top with, you know, the little bio statement with Steve Jobs, right? I think action item I'd really encourage you to do is to think deeply and write, think deeply and write about the things that you care about in the world, the problems that you care deeply about, write about them. Why are they important to you? Why do you care? What future would you build if you had the, you know, 
the opportunity to change something. If you could write 10 years out with clarity, the future vision that you want to create, almost like a vision document, that's going to be pretty impactful when you think about problems you want to go attack. The second one that I'll say is, you know, no matter what company you join or that you found or whatever the case may be in the middle, my suggestion for, you know, early people in their career is don't optimize for money, optimize for experience as an opportunity and to work with great leaders, to work with great leaders. You can only do so much until you get experience, right? And there are those very lucky founders that, you know, hit it right the first time. But I'll tell you, I've learned so much more from my failures than I have from my successes. And that laundry list is extremely long of failures, uh, both micro failures and macro failures. And then the third kind of action item and takeaway, and I really want to you know, talk about this one, is mental health is a serious thing. And I think as a person like myself who grew up as an athlete, as a kind of a you know, s- sort of like an alpha type, I didn't really buy into the, the whole mental health thing until it hit me like a freight train. And then when I got to a point where I was like, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I've had to now work extremely hard, actively working on that uh, is a real journey. And so I think the earlier you start to realize that like, life is not just about roses and butterflies. We all go through things. And when we go through these things, we have to reach out for support. And we have to be honest with ourselves about the challenges that we're going through and really set a foundation for yourself as early as possible. You have to put a team around you. In my case, that team around me is like my, you know, obviously my close family and friends, uh, but it's, you know, CEO coach, it's a therapist. I'm working with, you know, uh, a physiotherapist on top of that for my body, right? Like you got to put a team of people around you to help support you through the hard times. And um, don't be afraid to be vulnerable and be real about the problems you're going through. And I, I'd say that's, if I can leave, you know, everybody with one thing, it's that. That's uh, really important to actually focus on because not a lot of people, you know, talk about mental health. And so thank you for bringing that up. So just to like, make sure I got this right. So the way you kind of focus on your mental health is supporting yourself with people. And that's kind of how, if you're like, you know, struggling with something, then you just like go to these people. But first you have to like find out through maybe reflection that right now you're not optimizing for your health, right? Yeah. And there's a yeah. great quote that I, uh, that I read once that uh, happiness is an inside job and yeah. happiness being an inside job means that there's only one person responsible for that. You can choose to be happy. You can choose to be unhappy. That's a choice. And so, you know, exercises like gratitude journals and, and reflection of time, spend time by yourself is really important too. Right. But don't go through the process by yourself, but spending time by yourself is critical. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We learned a lot and it was really fun. So thanks once again for agreeing to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun.